This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Tobin about how to make the most of an academic conference. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much, Christina. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with your listeners today. Thank you for having me on. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about this. I remember back when I started going to academic conferences and I really felt unprepared. And I confess that even today, after having been to many and even helped once put one on, I still feel like it's not my wheelhouse. So I'm glad that you're going to be here today and help us all get some tips and um, ideas for how we can make the most of going and being part of that. But before we jump in, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I am. I tell my nieces and nephews that I'm in the 44th grade because I never really stopped doing educational things for my own development. And I teach teachers how to teach. That's what I tell my nieces and nephews. I'm one of the founding members of the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Mentoring at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And before that, uh, at various colleges and universities around North America, I've spent 25 years uh, becoming an advocate for the use of technology to help lower barriers for learners who have disability challenges work responsibilities, family responsibilities, any kind of barriers that would keep them from being able to take full advantage of the educational opportunities that our colleges and universities offer. And those have been needed the whole time that you've been working in this space, but it only came to some people's attention during the pandemic, which seemed to amplify the inequalities and seem to be brand new information for some people that these barriers and problems existed. Well, I joke around that that's one of the reasons why I still have a job is that only about 10% of our instructor and faculty colleagues have historically used any kind of inclusive design practices. 
the pandemic made it plain to all of us that we all have barriers and challenges and that there are a subset of folks who are thinking, doing scholarship, doing research at a deep level to try to think about how do we keep the lights on? How do we provide access to quality conversations and experiences in higher education. And that's actually one of the reasons why I put that article together for the Chronicle of Higher Education on how to make the most of academic conferences. I've been in every single seat and role that there is to play in conferences. I've been a graduate student attendee. I've been a new faculty attendee. I've been a new staff member attendee. I've helped to plan them. I've helped to put them on. I'm on the uh, governing board for the Distance Teaching and Learning Conference at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're partnering with UPSIA, the University Professional and Continuing Education Association, this year to put that one on. I've also been a reviewer, a peer consultant, I've been a tech guy at a conference and lots of the, the different roles that you can play. I've probably worn that hat at one point or another. So I was kind of honored when the editors at the Chronicle reached out to me and they said, we've talked to a few colleagues and they said, you kind of know what you're doing. Would you consider writing an advice guide? And at that point, I thought, you know, I do kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't know all that much. So I really wanted to do my research. And the genesis of that article in the Chronicle was me calling up a number of my colleagues who have had different experiences than I had. Readers and listeners, they can't see that I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, white guy over 50 with a bunch of gray hair and tons of unexamined privileges. So I wanted to connect with many of my colleagues for whom their conference-going experiences were very different. And that led to a section in that advice guide about the do's and don'ts of the social microcosm that is an academic conference. So that's how the article came into being. Are there places where we should start our conversation, do you think? I'd like to jump into uh, what you just touched on, which is the the social aspect of it. Um, for many people, for a variety of reasons, the social microcosm of conferences poses the most challenges. So what did your research tell you? Well, my the conversations that I had with colleagues, research on what other people had written about conferences, I learned three big things. The first thing I learned was that there's a lot of bad advice out there. Uh, people saying that, you know, hey, you introverts, you should turn yourselves into a battle-hardened robot and just suck it up and pretend to be an extrovert for three or four days. Or the bad advice was, you know, if you go into a social situation like a cocktail party or a reception and you'd prefer not to drink alcohol, well, you know, if everybody else is doing it, you should conform to what they're doing. Lots of bad advice out there. And I think that's because as social animals, we kind of want to fit in where there are new social interactions that we want to have. And the recent developments in a lot of different social movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, have shown us that fitting in often comes at a, a cost that is too high for many people to, to, to pay. That fitting in part of conferences 
we're now in a place collectively where we're more understanding of the various differences that people bring into conference spaces, whether they are in person or whether they're online and remote. And we want to celebrate those differences, take advantage of the affordances that those differences allow us, and also be more respectful as conference organizers and as fellow conference goers about the boundaries and ways of being that people bring into those spaces. So the first thing I learned, there was a lot of of misguided or bad advice or outdated advice out there. That led to a second aha moment, which was my experience of conferences as a seasoned in uh, academic white male was in some cases very, very different than the experiences of a conference from a black female identifying graduate student. And it all has to do with ordinary social power dynamics. So what I wanted to do in the advice guide was allow people to be themselves while still being socially open to the kinds of conversations that you want to have. The the bad advice version is, you know, go to the conference and talk to everybody. You never know who's going to be able to help you later on and make it all about your career and and getting ahead and climbing the, the ladder in a social way. A conference is actually a meeting of people who all care about the same particular subject. So whether that's a really niche conference in your field, so the conference of microbiologists that meets in uh, in the, the Midwest every year, or that's a conference that's huge and encompasses a very large topic, uh, it doesn't really matter what the size and scope and scale of the conference is like. But when you go to a conference, the impetus, the reason for it is to make connections, is to find out who's doing work that is interesting to you. Who's asking questions that you're also asking? Where can you find friends? Where can you find allies? Where can you find colleagues? So in the advice guide that I wrote, I tried to frame the purposes for going to a conference. One of them is career development, but it's way down on the list closer to the top of your list should probably be, I want to answer a question, I want to find a community, or I want to volunteer and engage in the research and the the conversations that are happening. And then the third thing that I learned as I was talking with my colleagues was that we all do conferences, and I'll put air quotes here on, on do conferences, in very different ways. Some of us Uh, We want to attend a few sessions and we need our Netflix and chill at the end of the day. So we're not going to all of the different social events. And uh, I'll I'll confess that the the one conference that I I have in mind, I won't name it, they had 6 a.m. yoga and they had the 11.30 p.m. reception with cocktails and snacks And I'm not sure when they expected people were going to sleep. So the conference schedule itself sometimes contributes to the feeling of, oh, I'm missing out if I don't do all the things. And when I talk to many of my colleagues, the sense of 
I'm paying for it or my department is paying for it or we're splitting the cost. So therefore, there's this expectation that I have to get as much out of this experience as I can. That leads to burnout. And listeners, you all know this. If you pay a little bit of attention to 30 things, you'll remember only two of them. But if you pay deep attention to four things, you'll probably bring a lot of those four things back with yourself. So giving yourself permission when you're taking part in a conference to dive deep and dive narrowly is one of those big, big takeaways that, you know, even as I was formulating the article was a revelation to me. It was something that I knew intuitively and I did just because that's how I approached conferences. And to think about it from a structural perspective, that really helped me to think, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I guess this is the reason behind why I do what I do. So those were the three big takeaways when I was doing the research for the article. One of the things you say in the article is it's important to be realistic. And I think you just gave us some really good uh, background on what we need to be realistic about. Um, And one of the things is that it's really important to decide which conference to attend. Can you talk about in the sea of conferences out there? And as you've said, there's a real cost benefit analysis people are doing as they determine can they go? Can they afford to go? What are they trying to get from it? Um, how can you be realistic about what you're, you know, what you're going to do while you're there? I think you gave us some tips already, but if we want to go a deeper dive, and how do we choose which conference to attend? It's a wonderful question, and I, I purposely dodged that a little bit in the article, so I'm grateful to dive in on it with you now. When you're a new or new faculty member, early career person, you're a graduate student, you might not have access to a lot of resources where you pay for everything up front and then you might get reimbursed for some of it sometime later in the future. That creates inequity. So one, there may be three things to think about here. The first one is, is this an experience that is going to pay you back in some way? way. And if we say pay us back, we automatically think about the budget, but there are other ways to get value out of a conference experience. So pay me back might be my department has funds to go to this thing and it's a respected conference in my field. I know that I'm going to be able to uh, bring back information, ideas, or practices that will help me in my own career development help me in the work that I'm doing, the teaching that I'm doing, the research that I'm doing, my academic role. That's a wonderful way to think about payback. A second thing to think about when you're choosing which conferences to attend is how will it pay me back in terms of connections and network? Now, when we say networking, most people think of sort of oily schmoozing with business cards, and it doesn't have to be like that. Can you find one or two people with whom you'd like to continue a conversation? Is this a place where you're going to run across other people who are in a similar career stage to your own, who are working on advocacy efforts that you feel you want to get behind? So those are the kinds of events that you'll want to attend. 
How do you know whether that's going to happen at a particular event, especially if you've never been to that particular conference before? This is where it pays to talk to people who've been there. Contact the conference organizers and ask, I'm interested in this conference. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? But also ask the conference organizers to put you in touch with previous year's attendees who are comfortable sharing their contact information. There's always a few sort of friends of the conference who like to be advocates for the conference event itself and can tell you more about the community that that conference has built up. If the conference is a humongous thing where there are thousands of people in a place or in a virtual spot, then ask about the communities that are coming up inside the conference, the working groups, the birds of a feather groups, those kinds of things. And think about how do you want to move your career ahead or strengthen your practices in your academic role, and who can help you with those conversations. Those are two different ways to think about the conference. The third way of choosing a conference is to be a little strategic with the other people in your unit at your college, university, or school. So, for example, my partner is a faculty member at Penn State, and she is an educational developer. Her boss sends six of, uh, of her colleagues to the Professional and Organizational Development Network, POD Network, conference every year. They just have budget for it, and that is, quote-unquote, their conference, whether they're presenting anything or not. They, six of them go. Not all of us have that kind of resource, and not all of us have that kind of established relationship with an annual event. So... If that's not you, and chances are it's not, then the way to think about it is, okay, there's 10 of us uh, full-time faculty members in a department, and we have 20 adjunct instructors, and we have 15 graduate students. If we look at all of the conferences that are in our field, if I'm going to conference A, and a colleague is going to conference B, another colleague is going to conference C, well, if you would go to conference D, then all four of us can come back to the department and provide a train the trainer or what I learned or here's something new for everybody else when you get back home. So going to a conference is wonderful for your own professional development. It's also professional development by proxy for your colleagues back at the institution. This is an especially important way to think about how you allocate resources and which conferences you choose to go to, because then you get more value than just yourself. Because when your colleagues come back from their conferences, they sit down and have a brown bag lunch and tell you about the exciting sessions that they saw, the new concepts, the new practices they saw, the connections they made, the people you probably want to talk to now. So if you can divide and conquer, if you can bring back more information, then it's no longer just about your own individual development. It's more about building community in your department or your unit, and then extending community across different events. Uh, I, I have to say that one of the, the emails that makes my day is when I get an email from somebody I've never met, and they say, my colleague went to a conference and met you, and they said 
you would be a good person to talk to about this particular thing. Can we set up a conversation? That kind of network building is a key. And it also means that the conference money that we're spending to actually attend the conferences, either virtually or in person, goes farther. And that's all to the good. So three different ways to think about how do you choose which conference. At the time that you published How to Make the Most of an Academic Conference uh, in the Chronicle, it was deep into the pandemic. It was July 2020. And in the article, you were helping people cope with the pivot to online. You pointed out in the article that you had personally been doing this kind of work for 25 years, that online organizing, online conferences were not new but you recognize that they were new to a lot of people who were either taking an in-person conference now online or people who had only ever attended in person and had no experience attending online. And you offer some specific um, strategies for how to have social interaction in an online conference. Do you want to share what some of those are? Absolutely. And uh, here's a little sneak plug. The how to make the most of an academic conference is actually the second Chronicle article that I wrote about academic conferences. The first one was how to make the most of a virtual conference. So there's an entirely different article that I wrote about virtual conferences. We will link that in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. And in that article, uh, and in some of the, the larger article as well, I talk a little bit about why virtual conferences didn't really catch on until the pandemic, and then why we still don't get as much out of them as we might. Why didn't they catch on? Well, online interactions, whether they are asynchronous or they're happening live, they are a different kind of social interaction. And if you've got your camera on and you're looking at your own reflection in the camera and your microphone is active and you're a partner uh, and a participant in a live conference session that's happening virtually, our psychology colleagues will tell us that it feels like everyone else is looking at you all the time. So every chance I get, I turn my camera off. I take my microphone off and I just listen. And when I have something to say or contribute, I'll post it into the chat feature of the, the interface, or I'll raise my hand politely and ask to come on the microphone and be part of the conversation that way. That's the other reason why online conferences tended not to take off or become very big until we all went that direction because of the pandemic, is that technology is a mediating factor in interactions where we don't normally have mediating factors. So imagine you're at an in-person conference and you hear a talk, then there's an open period for question and answer. And then in the hallway afterwards, if you really liked what the speaker was saying, you might go up to him or her and say, hey, I, can I talk to you for a minute? Can we have some coffee? And those social interactions are of the sort that we kind of know how to do from other kinds of interactions in our lives. We know how to walk up to somebody and say, I'm interested in what you just said. In an online environment, having to post a message and then maybe the, the response comes tomorrow. Or in a live session, having to use that raise your hand feature and wait to be recognized. Those things are 
typically unfamiliar territory for us. And we don't have social cues and social norms that tell us, oh, yes, I'm acting appropriately here or I'm out of line and other people will think that I'm, I'm being rude or boorish. So one of the reasons why things didn't take off is that there's a different set of social norms that we kind of have to learn anew in online conferences. Now, let's flip that coin around, though. Why are online conferences excellent ideas, and why should we have online and remote access even when we all start going back to face-to-face -face events? Two big reasons. One is access. More people can attend an online event because there's no travel involved than the folks who have the privilege of funding to go get on a plane and fly across the continent to an annual meeting. So it's an access concern. Uh, folks who don't have budget, uh, folks with disability barriers, folks who come from smaller institutions, uh, you pick the reason that you don't have all the privileges of somebody who's got full funding and can just travel all over the place. But having an online version of or access to interactions, even for a face-to-face -face conference, that's an access issue. The second part of that is an equity issue. We want our fields to look more like the communities that they serve. For a long, long time, many academic conferences were the purview of, I'll say it, largely white, largely male groups of people getting together. And now that we have conferences in fields that are up and coming, and even the conferences in fields that have been long established, we're starting to recognize that diversity, equity, and inclusion are important planks in the platform of helping to reach out to everyone in our fields. Also, in terms of equity, we want more of our adjunct and contingent instructors. We want more of our staff colleagues. We want more of our graduate students to be part of the conversations that happen at conferences and then outlast the conferences, talking about what's the direction that our field should be taking? What are the big advocacy ideas that we want to push forward on in terms of uh, legislative agenda, in terms of uh, making sure that we are open and welcoming to more people in our field, in terms of outreach and a pipeline into the K-12 schools to help get kids and young learners interested in joining our fields when they grow up. So those are all conversations where we want more people to have more broader and easier access. So I'll say something a little controversial here. If you're thinking about going to an online conference, here's the controversial spot. Even if the access isn't exactly the same as isn't as good as, or isn't as engaging or meaningful as the kinds of interactions that you would have face-to-face, -face, still go to the online conference. That access by itself, even if it's not 100% the same kind of experience, is still a valid way to be a part of your conversations instead of being outside and apart from them. Now, and oh, go ahead. I was going to jump in and say, I know that you have worked in um, 
accessibility offices on campuses. Could you take a moment to talk about ways that online conferences could make sure that they are truly accessible for people with visual or hearing needs? I, just moving something online does remove a lot of barriers of access, meaning childcare, travel impediments, cost impediments, but actually accessing it online does still present some barriers. And people listening may be thinking about how to move their conference online or how to make their online conference even better. And I know you know this stuff. Uh, thanks, Christina. And I'll, I'll just clarify, I have never actually worked in a disability or accessibility office, but I've been an advocate for the rights of people who have disability barriers in their environments. And a couple of the books that I've written, like Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education, have focused on how to lower barriers, not only for people who have disability barriers, but also for folks who have work, family responsibilities, other demands on their time, like you were talking about in terms of childcare and the, and the privilege of travel. So when we think about lowering barriers, let's talk from the perspective of the organizers of online conferences and then the participants in the online conferences. So if you're a participant in an online conference, the number one reason why you won't get as much out of that conference as you could is time management. When you go to an in-person conference, there is an expectation that you are away from your everyday work and that you're not going to be expected to check in on email six times a day. You're not going to be expected to take care of urgent situations that come up. Your colleagues should be covering for you in that regard. Does it always happen exactly that way? No. But the expectation is you're away. You're at a conference. You're doing professional development. You're doing something different. And so the expectation is, yeah, that person isn't going to be fully present for work. For an online conference, it's easy to get sucked back in to the everyday part of work. And you say, oh, you know, this, this big thing came up and I'll take care of it. And then I'll watch the recording of that session later. Listeners, there is never a later. You're not going to watch the recordings. You're not going to make time for it. So the biggest thing that you can do as a participant in an online conference is to set your out-of-office email response. Turn off your email client on your desktop and on your phone and actually be fully present in the conference environment, whether that's Zoom or it's a, a, a management system or another environment. The best thing that you can do is enlist your colleagues to help you maintain that time away from your ordinary work, even if you happen to be sitting in the same chair where you do your ordinary work. During the pandemic, when many of us had to work remotely, at least temporarily, that was a little easier to do. But then, you know, the kids are running around in the living room and the dog is barking and there are other things that you have to attend to as well. The same advice there. Make sure that your family, your loved ones uh, know that when your door is shut to your home office, that you are concentrating on this conference. So whether you are on a campus and you are attending a conference remotely or you're working at home or in another remote location and you're attending an online conference, big tip number one, and if it's the only one you take, 
manage that time and make your focus be on the conference itself. Let's flip the coin over as well and talk about how we can make conference experiences as organizers more accessible for more people. And Christina, you asked about how can we help people with uh, hearing challenges or visual challenges uh, be more full participants in our conference experiences. Three things we can do as conference organizers. First, train the presenters. Let the presenters know that just talking at an audience for 45 minutes is not the way we want to do our conference. Ha help them to understand how to break up their time into 10 minute chunks and then a pause for two minutes to ask participants to take some kind of action. Get the participants engaged, get the participants asking questions, doing reflection. In fact, Christina, you and I have been doing it here. I'll talk for about five, 10 minutes and then there's more questions, there's more conversation. So this isn't just a lecture from me. The second thing we can do as organizers is when we are asking our presenters to create content, ask them to create the content in more than one format. So if they have visuals for slides, but they also have some notes about what they plan to talk about, what the, what, what's the words that they want to say. Now, we're not going to ask all of our presenters to give us word for word transcripts of what they plan to say. Having an outline, though, is really helpful for folks who are working off of text or even folks who might be attending the conference and they have a headphone in while they're driving on their way to and from work and school. The third thing that we can do is to ask people to be mindful of the inclusion scenarios like people with low vision, people with hearing challenges, people who are logging in from their mobile devices for whatever reason due to circumstances, and treat an online conference almost like a radio program, almost like this podcast. So if I had some visuals on a screen, I might take a second and describe what's on the screen. Even though the people in a Zoom room might be able to see those visuals, me as the presenter, if I say, on your screen is an image of some students. They're at a desk. Some of them have laptops. Some of them are on their mobile phones. And one of them is pointing off to a screen that they're looking at because they're studying together. Just taking that 15 seconds to describe that image means that people are a better able to follow along no matter what. And the last little bit that I'll put on there is as the organizers, we should adopt tools for our online conferences that allow us to provide information in more than one way. So for example, in a Zoom call, make sure that the hosts turn on the automatic live captioning, or the hosts have the opportunity to work with your sign language or captioning interpreters so that there is a live signal that goes out in an audio channel and as text so that people can follow along. And the uh, last thing that I'll say on this regard actually isn't conference advice. It's a question for listeners. How many of us turn on the captions or subtitles when we're watching TV shows and movies at home? I'm one of them. And I don't identify as having a, a hearing challenge. But if I'm watching a Guy Ritchie movie and everybody's talking in various different British accents, I want the subtitles. And that's true too for most of the video that people consume. 
of all the videos on YouTube, YouTube collects the, t- the statistics. More than 70% of all video plays on YouTube have the captions on where captions are present. 70%. So not all of us have hearing challenges, but we all benefit from having choices about how we take in information and then share it back with one another. So those are some thoughts on how we can work as participants and as organizers of conferences to lower barriers and make it a more rewarding experience. You also advise um, having a practice session that conference organizers offer it maybe offer more than one time so people can make that work and then taking use of it, showing up for the conference, um, the conference's practice session and practicing on their platform, uh, try using their technology and, and see how it's going to go. You also advise that we be flexible, even though you may have practiced day of your Wi-Fi may be acting wonky. I'll, I'll share an example for me. I've recently in the last couple of years was in two different online uh, conferences. The practice session went great and morning of, um, I was in a brownout situation because on the West coast, we, um, keep catching on fire. And so as a precaution, they do that. And so I was not able to use any of my slides at all. And I had, um, prepared what I might do in the event that that happened, but I was still pretty flustered, um, trying to give my presentation without, uh, how I practiced it and how I planned it. And we just need to have that sort of grace that we would have in person, um, and take that online as well. And and I love the way that you're framing the example because the example that everybody talks about is the pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic. The flexibility and grace that we need to extend to one another is more than just health related. So the the wildfires in the western United States that cause those power brownouts or outages, um, it can be bad weather in the northeast with rainstorms and snowstorms. It can be all kinds of different weather events. It can be unexpected challenges in your personal life. Uh, you know, daycare falls through and you have to have the kids at home with you. So one thing, and maybe this is a good way to to wrap up our arguments and conversation for today, is when you're thinking about attending a conference in any fashion, whether you're going to a new city and you're going to meet colleagues and enjoy the town and enjoy the in-person camaraderie that you're going to create, or if you're going to a virtual event and you want to get the most out of it and make some connections there, remember that we're human beings and that things are not going to go the way we had planned them pretty regularly. Someone's going to put a foot in their mouth and say something wrong that might offend a few people. Uh, but if they're willing to you know, get back on track, apologize for faux pas or, or you know, misunderstandings, then treat them with dignity and with respect. Also, some of the best conference presentations I've ever seen were from people who were newer in the field. Uh, Two or three years ago, I uh, was at an in-person conference and there was a newer scholar in the field standing up at a podium, nervous as heck, and confessed to it right on the microphone. He said, you know, this is the first time I'm presenting at a conference and I'm really nervous right now. And a number of people in the audience yelled out, we got you, you, you can do it, we'll support you. And he, he did it. It was, it was halting. It was a little here and there. He ran, you know, in different directions. 
at the same time, he had a really good idea. He was asking excellent questions. And by the time the session was over, he had made some colleagues and friends in the audience. And we wanted to continue the conversation with this newer member of the, of the profession. So when you're attending conferences, you know, your mom was right. No one is actually looking at you and judging you for the behavior that you're doing, unless it's behavior that goes against those social norms. So be supportive of the newer voices in your field. If you're a brand new person, Ask colleagues whom you know to introduce you to people who would be useful for conversations later on. If you're a seasoned veteran and you've been there, done it, seen it all, challenge yourself. Go to sessions where you don't know what the title even means. Go to sessions from people that you haven't seen a million times. A lot of us go to conferences just to be to be in the same room with friends we haven't seen for a long time. And that's great. At the same time, don't forget that we have that social obligation to support the newer voices in our fields, to make people feel welcome. And if things don't go the way that we had planned, to offer a little bit of grace for our colleagues and our friends. The last piece that I want to want to share here, though, is for the organizers of conferences, if you are participating in a conference and something isn't right. It, and this goes to, you know, not enough coffee in the hallways during breaks, all the way up to somebody used uh, inappropriate language in a presentation. That's something that the organizers do want to hear about. They want to make sure that your experience of the conference is useful, engaging, practical for you, and that you feel safe and welcome throughout the whole experience. So if you encounter something that doesn't make you feel safe, that doesn't make you feel welcome, if you feel that you have the standing to do it, call out that behavior and say, hey, that, was, that wasn't right or that wasn't the, the way to go. But if you don't feel that it's appropriate or you don't have standing in that particular moment, definitely take a minute and let the organizers know what's going well. We love it when you tell us what, what happened well and let the organizers know what could be different or what people we should keep an eye on as well. So the whole lesson to take away from the entire conversation about going to conferences is one, conferences are little terrarium worlds with their own social mores and their own ways of being. So it's okay if you don't know all of those things up front. Ask a few people who've been there a couple of times and they'll help you guide, guide yourself through. Two, Conferences are meant to be conversations among people who are passionate about the same thing. So find a way not only to experience what people are sharing with you, but find a way to continue those conversations even beyond the event. Those are going to be your professional networks later on in the year and as you develop and move through your career. And third, conferences are meant to be a low-key informal space. They're not necessarily, you know, a, a starched formal interaction, but they're meant to be a little bit fun, a little bit engaging. So find ways that you can move within the conference and outside of it. Explore the city that the conference is in, 
maybe skip a session or two and call your partner back home, but find ways to make a balance that works for you when you attend. So I've got a lot more advice in the article, but Christina, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with your listeners and share a few tips and tricks, some of which went beyond the article and some of which they'll find more about in that Chronicle article. So I appreciate making time for me. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, um, my final question is, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Uh, the, the spark that I hope people take away is that conference going should be for everybody. It is for you, regardless of the intersections of personality and background that you bring to it. And that most conferences will welcome your voice. So to the extent that you want to, and can contribute, be a part of the conversation, dive right in and, and choose one that's your mainstay and then sample a few others as you go through your career. It's a lot more engaging if you find your people and then you come back year after year after year. So for me, that's the Distance Learning Administrators Conference down in Jekyll Island, Georgia, sponsored by the University of West Georgia. I've been going there since 1998. And these are my people. These are the people who are my friends, my colleagues. I see them year after year, and they are my network of people where I pick up the phone first, I send the text message first, I send the email first. And it took me a while to find that conference, even as a young graduate student, but they made me feel welcome. They made me feel a part of their event and their conversation. So find one that works for you and then build your network within those things. And if you're lucky, it'll be somewhere beautiful like Jekyll Island. Uh, it's not actually so bad. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Tobin, and telling us all your advice about how to make the most of an academic conference. References to the articles and his book will be in the show notes for listeners. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.